doing? Okay, this is not the music. This is covenant nurture. Covenant nurture and our baptismal vows is the first segment of our study today. I hope that we will get on to section three, why teach our covenant children. If we don't, we're not going to finish everything in four sessions. So I hope to get further than Roman numeral two today. But let's look at Roman numeral two. And our question that we're dealing with is, what is covenant nurture? And we're also going to be answering the question regarding baptism, what it is, and whether it is to be administered to adults and or to infants. Well, you shouldn't say or, but uh, and to infants. And then thirdly, covenant, infant, or pedo-baptism, why do we do it? Now, the first thing we need to get straight is something that is often overlooked. And that is that baptism is, are you ready for this? An entirely passive sacrament. Now, you might be willing to accept the fact that it has passive features. But I'm going further than that, and I'm alleging that baptism is an entirely passive sacrament. Now, what I do not mean by this statement is that the recipients of baptism, the people being baptized, are entirely passive. Take the infants. They're breathing. Take the adult convert. He or she is believing as well as breathing. But what I do mean when I say that baptism is an entirely passive sacrament is that people are baptized. You feel the force of the last E.D., It is done with respect to them. They do not do it. And this is true of all baptisms, not just infant baptism. An adult convert who is baptized is baptized. He or she does not baptize him or herself. Now, we need to take a look at the PCA's wording of the questions to be proposed to parents. And my purpose in pointing this out is not to in any way set forth the PCA as an inferior church or any such thing, but to contrast, rather, the form of the vows that is used in uh, our sister denomination, for they are a sister denomination. We receive them as brothers and sisters in Christ and we have the the highest regard for them. And we would even love to see it possible, and who knows, it may happen, though probably not in my lifetime, that uh, we should uh, again initiate talks to see whether it would be possible for us to have a union between our two denominations. But that does not seem to be on the immediate horizon. And so I want you to understand that my reference to the PCA's vows in baptism is not an attempt on my part Uh, to in any way distance ourselves or push them away from us, and certainly it is not to put them down. 
But it is a difference, and I think the difference is significant, that exists between our form of the vows and theirs. And I frankly and humbly believe that our form is superior, and I want you to see why. And uh, the purpose of this then would be not that we would speak down the PCA or speak up the OPC, but that we should understand something more about covenant nurture by simply identifying these differences. Now, this may be a carryover from their old roots in the Southern Presbyterian Church, and I have a sneaky suspicion that that's what's happened. Somewhere along the line, the Southern Presbyterian Church lost its way covenantally. Not entirely, but it's reflected in the vows that they asked the parents to take at the time of the baptism of their children. And when the PCA was formed in uh, 1973, they didn't have time to fix everything, I take it. And they didn't fix this one. I wish they had. Uh, in fact, if they had fixed this one, I would be a lot more amenable to a church union with the PCA than I am at present. This is one of the real lumps in my throat. And I've talked about this with my brother Rick, who's the pastor of a PCA congregation in Willow Grove, Pennsylvania, just two miles from, from us. In fact, it's the church that I grew up in and he grew up in. It's now in the PCA and he's the pastor of it. It's an interesting situation because there are a couple of uh, elderly people in that church that remember when their pastor was born, <laughs> which is an interesting situation. They probably changed his diapers. And that <laughs> But uh, I talked with Rick about it, and I even talked to Morton Smith about this. Morton Smith is a respected theologian in the PCA, and he said, you're right, Tom, this needs to be changed. And he uh, tried to get it changed unsuccessfully. And, uh, well, maybe someone ought to try it again. But uh, there it is. It's, uh, it's not um, optional in the PCA. If you're a minister and you're baptizing a baby... Uh, you, sh you are authori not authorized, you are obliged to ask these questions. I don't think that it says, shall ask these questions or words to this effect. The these are the vows that are to be uh, put to parents in the PCA. The first one is an acknowledgement, just as ours is an acknowledgement. But it goes this way. Do you acknowledge your child's need of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ and the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit. That's it. That's the tot sum totality of the acknowledgement. And then comes the vow. Well, actually, uh, the second one is, I'm not sure whether it's an acknowledgement or a vow. It's a claim. But do you claim? I I'm not sure I understand what that means, to claim. But do you claim God's covenant promises in his or her behalf? And do you look in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ for his or her salvation as you do for your own? Now think about that. The parents are asked whether they claim God's covenant. Do they have a choice? Uh, and uh, do they look in faith to the Lord <laughs> They're not being baptized. You see the problem that you have with this. Do, do they claim God's... Uh, do they look in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, as you do for your own, for, for the salvation of the child. Uh, 
it seems to me that the child's going to need to look to the Lord Jesus for salvation, don't you think? So I, I just have real problems with understanding number two, but we don't have anything like number two in our vows, that, that claim. It, it's just not there in ours. We don't believe in, what would you call it, surrogate, surrogate faith or something like that. Proxy, yeah, proxy faith. So it's not so much that number two is, is badly worded, although I think it is, it, it, it doesn't, somehow it doesn't fit. We, we don't have one like that. So number one is very truncated, that acknowledgement of the child's need of cleansing blood of Jesus Christ and the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit. It, it, there's not, much is not there that is in our acknowledgement. And number two doesn't seem to fit and then number three now becomes baptistic. Do you now unreservedly dedicate your child to God? Well, now wait a minute. Where is that in baptism? It's not a bad thing to dedicate, but I'm not sure I understand what it means. And any Baptist would have no problem with that. that in fact, that's what they do. They don't baptize their children. They dedicate them. And so the PCA dedicates them too. And, and then finally follows, after that, the same language as we have in the OPC vow regarding what the parent's going to do. I'm going to bring up the child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So I don't quarrel with that because it's the same as ours. Okay, now, consider the OPC's form, which calls for parents to respond to questions by taking vows. The first one has to do with what the parents believe and as such might better be called affirmations. Here's our language. Do you acknowledge that although our children are conceived and born in sin and therefore are subject to condemnation, they are holy in Christ and as members of his church ought to be baptized? You see, that's all missing from the PCA affirmations. It's not there. And I don't know why the Southern Presbyterian Church 150 years ago or whenever it happened had problems with that. What's wrong with it? Is that not the teaching of Scripture? But it got taken out and it's still gone. I think it should be there. Number two, B. The second vow has to do with what the parents promised to do and as such may be indeed called a vow. Do you promise to instruct your child in the principles of our holy religion as revealed in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments and as summarized in the confession of faith and catechisms of this church? And do you promise to pray with and for your child to set an example of piety and godliness before him and to endeavor by all the means of God's appointment to bring him up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? Now, we've given this altogether too brief survey of the, of the two forms and the difference between them. Did you catch the not very subtle difference between them? The first vow, or an affirmation, is in the Orthodox Presbyterian form, what is presently the case, rather than either our current subjective belief or their future subjective belief. What the parents affirm is just this. It is so that our children are conceived and born in sin and that they are subject to condemnation and that they are holy in Christ 
and that as members of the church, his church, ought to be baptized. That's, that's all an affirmation of what is the case. Look back at the PCA one. Do you acknowledge your child's need of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ and the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit? Oh, that's also true. The child does need that. But that is the only thing that is affirmed. This child needs to be saved. That's what they say. So that's a very, very significant difference. But, but look at the second one, the second vow. What is promised is solely what we propose to do in fulfillment of a divinely revealed covenantal responsibility. Do you promise to instruct your child, to pray with your child, to set an example of piety and godliness before the child, and to endeavor by all the means of God's appointment to bring the child up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? Do you? Do you promise to do that? And the parent says, yes, I do promise to do that. Whereas in the PCA one, we have rather in fulfillment of something of our own invention. We, uh, what we're doing here is dedicating this child. Now, after you dedicate the child, then you need to do something about it. But where does that dedication come from? Uh, is this something like what Hannah did with Samuel in the temple? Or if you, you might be able to find uh, a, uh, an illustration of something, some kind of dedication in the Bible, but just finding that is that grounds for doing that at the time of baptism of our children. I, I don't see the connection. Well, let's look a little bit uh, more in detail to the affirmation. We affirm that our children are conceived and born in sin. Now, this wording is definitely to be preferred to any suggested amendment. People have thought that that's, that's tough language. What is this? Conceived and born in sin. Does that mean that conception of children is sinful? Certainly not. And so some have said, we need to uh, say, conceived and born as sinners. Well... I, don't, I hope that that doesn't happen. I think conceived and born in sin is biblical, and we ought to stick with it. Subject to condemnation. Look at Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, 22. As in Adam, all die. We all died in Adam, and our children are subject to condemnation because they are human critters. They are holy in Christ. Where do we get that? From 1 Corinthians 7, 14. Some of the women in Corinth were writing to the Apostle Paul and saying, I know, Paul, that you're teaching that our children are holy in Christ. That apparently was what Paul had been teaching. As the Old Testament, the covenant of promise, saw children as belonging to the church, as set apart to God. Israelite parents didn't say, Well, Lord, which of these kids that you have created are Israelite children and members of the church of God? Which ones? That was not a question. And so Paul is, has been teaching in Corinth that uh, our children are sub, set apart, are special, are holy. We're not talking about moral perfection. We're talking about being set apart from others, distinguished members of the church. 
And uh, these women, some of them, were married to unbelievers in Corinth. They'd been saved, but their husband hadn't. And these women were thinking, oh, does this impact our children? The fact that our precious children's father is an unbeliever, does that ruin or change or interfere with their covenant standing as being holy in Christ? And they asked Paul, and Paul said, no, no. That's the purpose of 1 Corinthians 7.14, to answer that question in the negative. One believing parent is a covenant family. It would be wonderful if those husbands in Corinth would get converted. But if they have not been converted, and even if they and never will be converted, a covenant home has been established because there is salvation in that home. And we also say that the, these children are, as members of his church, ought to be baptized. Now, that's just understanding what baptism itself is. You see, we have to be careful that we don't give in to the baptistic theology of baptism. The baptistic theology of baptism is that baptism is a testimony. That is primarily what they see it to be. It is a testimony to the world of the Christianity, of the salvation, of the conversion of the person who is baptized. That's what Baptists believe. And so, of course, they only baptize adults because only adults can testify that they are saved. They see baptism as a person standing on their hind feet and saying, world, I'm saved. I'm converted. I'm a believer in Jesus. And so they submit themselves to baptism, and in that baptism, we're not talking about the amount of water, or whether it's immersion or anything like that. that that's another side effect. But we're talking about the, the very right, R-I-T-E, of baptism is a testimony to the world that I am a believer. Now, we don't believe that. We believe that baptism is not a testimony of the believer, that he is a believer, that she is a believer. We believe that baptism is a testimony of God, that the person baptized is his person. You see the difference? In the Baptist system, we say something in baptism. In the Presbyterian, or we believe the biblical theology of baptism, God testifies that the person being baptized is His. In other words, it's a simple case of who's talking in baptism, or who's doing what. And that's why we say baptism is an entirely passive sacrament. Here's a 27-year-old young man who's been soundly converted from paganism and is now trusting in the Lord Jesus as a Savior. And he is baptized. What's happening there? Well, he's 27 years old and everybody knew him as a hard pagan doing awful things. And now he's a Christian and his life is being totally changed and turned around. Surely his baptism is him standing on his hind feet and saying, I'm a Christian, isn't it? Nope. 
His baptism is God saying, you see what I did? You see what I did? I took this person headed for hell and I said, oh no, you don't. And I sovereignly regenerated this young man and I brought him to faith in Jesus Christ and I incorporated him into my son and into his body, the church. And now I want him so branded. Baptize him, church. And the guy is baptized. You see the point? That's what we believe. And that happens also with our children. When they are baptized, God says, See what I did? I gave to John and Mary, this little one. I made this baby, and I put this baby into John and Mary, who, by the way, as you know, belong to me. I put this baby into their arms. You think that baby isn't mine? You've got to be kidding. And that baby is a member of the church, and jolly well will be thus identified, branded, baptized. So we don't even say in our vow, and uh, the child ought to be baptized so as to become a member of the church. <laughs> we put it like it is, as members of his church ought to be baptized. Well, we can be more brief with the vow, because here we don't have a, a difference of opinion so much with the, with the, with the PCA. That they have the same language as we do here. Here, here we, we have no quarrel with them. Do you promise to instruct your child in the principles of our holy religion as revealed in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments and as summarized in the confession of faith and catechisms of this church? Now this gets really neat because have you ever heard of the doctrine of a confessional church? In ecclesiology or the doctrine of the church, there is a viewpoint that says that the church needs to be a confessional church by each and every member. That is that the members of the church need to subscribe not only to the gospel, but also to the Reformed faith explanation of what that gospel is. We have a sister denomination north of the border called the Canadian Reformed Churches. They are a confessional church. And we had a dickens of a time getting to become churches in fraternal relationship. I've been on the ecumenicity committee for umpteen years now, and I came on in, in um, 1988, I believe it was, so I've been on it for 15 years. And when I came on the committee in 1988, we were not in ecclesiastical fellowship with the Canadian Reformed Churches because of this point. We are not a confessional church for membership, and they are. That means that every member of the Canadian Reformed Church has to sign off on the three forms of unity, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Canons of Dort, and the Belgic Confession. When you become a member of the Canadian Reformed Church, you say, I confess all that is contained in those three documents as being a faithful summary of the Scriptures. Now, I don't have so much trouble with that. I've read the Canons of Dort, the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, and they're pretty good documents. And I think I could say I, I subscribe to them too. Not every word of them, but in, 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 in the main, I subscribe to them too. That's not the point we're making here. The point we're making is that as a member, 
whether you're an 85-year-old woman who's been saved in a nursing home through the evangelistic ministry of the Canadian Reformed Church and you want to become a member of the local Canadian Reformed Church, or whether you're a 13-year-old adolescent or a young teenager in, in the Canadian Reformed Church who's making public profession of faith, both of them, the 86-year-old lady and the 13-year-old adolescent, they have to say, I ex- receive and accept and, compla- and, co- and, and uh, confess the uh, three forms of unity. They're a confessional church for membership. We're not. When you are examined for membership in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church by the session, the session doesn't give you an examination to find out whether you, whether you subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms. They want to find out whether you're a believer in Jesus. They want to find out what you mean by that. And as such, when they ask those questions, that gets into some of the stuff that's in the Westminster Confession. And we find out that there, uh, hopefully then, will be a, a lot of agreement between what that person says is their Christian profession and what we find in our confessional document. But we do not make them sign on the dotted line and say, we confess all these truths. It's when they want to be an officer in the church. That's when we get real fussy. And any man, and of course that's only man because we only have men, officers in our church, any man who wants to be a deacon, a ruling elder, or a minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church has to subscribe to the Westminster Standards. Has to do it. He has to receive and adopt, and when he's ordained, he says, I receive and adopt the Westminster Standards as containing the system of doctrine taught in the Holy Scriptures. And I think that's right. We should do that. So that's just to show you the difference between us and the Canadian Reformed Churches. They are a confessional church for membership. We are a confessional church for office. But, interestingly enough, what do we ask the parents? Look at it. Do you promise? This is mom and dad. This dad is not an officer in the OPC. And this mom sure isn't an officer either. We know that. Do you promise, John and Mary, to instruct your child in the principles of our holy religion as revealed in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, uh uh-oh, and as summarized in the confession of faith and catechisms of this church? And... uh, I told the Canadian Reformed Churches that, and that made them feel a lot more comfortable with us. It might have been the thing that helped us to make it together, and we are now an ecclesiastical fellowship for the Canadian Reformed Church. This might have done it. They realize that we mean business about this Reformed faith. And even though we're willing to receive a member of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church who has a little quibble or a little problem here or there with some angle of the Reformed faith, and they say, I can't exactly buy the teaching of the confession on, on the, that there are two biblical grounds for divorce. I think there's only one, or I think there's three, or something like that. They have some problem with the Westminster Confession. They can still be an Orthodox Presbyterian. Can't be an elder, can't be a deacon, can't be a minister, but they can be a member. But Canadian Reformed Churches don't think that thereby we are real fuzzy on the Reformed faith. We're not. When we baptize as a church, when we, let me put it this way, when we are the instruments of God baptizing His babies in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and we ask these parents 
into whose arms this child has been put. Are, we, are you willing to do stuff? We don't say to those parents, are, we, are you willing to give them kind of like a mushy, generalized, sort of a ballpark Christianity in their education? No way, Jose. Are you willing to teach these children reformed Christianity? The gospel as it is understood by us in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And if you want to know how do we understand it, have a look at our confessions. They'll tell you how we understand the gospel. Isn't that neat? And I think there's some tension here, isn't there? Here's that mom, here's John and Mary, and here's that dad, John. And they can be members of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church without subscribing to the Westminster Standards, but when they teach their kids, they better pay attention to those standards. Because we don't want our Orthodox Presbyterian kids growing up with a mushy concept of the gospel. And uh, if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. I realize there's some tension there. It seems as though we ought to make up our minds and either go all the way with the Canadian Reformed Churches and become a confessional church or chuck this language out of our vows. But I hope we don't do either of those. I think we ought to just stay... What do you think, Roger? Stay right where we are? Even though it... Do you agree with me? It does contain some, a little bit of tension. <laughs> Did you hear what he said? He said, "If we don't get you in the first generation, we'll get you in the second. <laughs> Do you promise to pray with and for your child? That's a no-brainer. Do you, do you promise to set an example of piety and godliness before him? That's another no-brainer. You mean you're going to tell this kid what God requires, but you don't have to do it yourself? Uh, to endeavor by all the means of God's appointment to bring him up in the nurture and admonition. All the means of God's appointment. Is there a catechism class in the church? You're going to send your kid. You're going to say, well, I can't do that on Saturday afternoon because we watch ball games then and it wouldn't be convenient. No, no. At the time of the baptism, you promise to endeavor by all the means of God's appointment to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Okay. Application. Five things for everybody to consider. I'm not going to comment on these. I'm just going to read them. I think they're self-explanatory. One, God makes babies. Two, babies are given parents. There's not a missing word there. This isn't a typo. It's not God, babies are given to parents. I mean exactly what I say. Babies are given parents and a Christian community. They're given those two things. C. The gifts of the whole church are for the whole church. D. We all ought to consider the possibility of giving parents a break. Maybe we could have a honeymoon club in our congregations and recognize that, that these children are members of the church and as such they share in the, in the blessing of the love of the whole church, not just the parents who have been given to them. The whole church has been given to them. And maybe these moms and dads sometimes need a time to get away. So might be a good idea for us to consider possibly having a honeymoon club where all the parents, particularly of young children in the church, get a, get a weekend. Get a weekend where they can go off and, and have a second honeymoon 
and uh, the church will jolly well take care of the kids for that weekend. Not a bad idea. Not a bad idea either to have catechism classes in the church. And uh, maybe, you, uh, maybe it should be this church. Maybe that's your church. Maybe your, your church doesn't have it. Ask the session, why don't we have catechism classes? And uh, they should come up with an answer. Here are five things for some of you to consider. Incorporate singles into your family life occasionally. Some of our churches have numbers of singles. I think we forget them. We need to bring them into our families and let them be part of our family for a day or so and just participate with us and share in the blessing of Christian family life. B, model parenting to singles and to childless as yet couples. If you're modeling parenting to singles, you're not saying you need to get married or what's wrong with you? You're not married, you don't have any kids. What you're saying is, it may happen for you. And we want you to be better prepared than we were. And we've learned some things. So come on into our home and see how we instruct our children. Come along with us to the bedside and see how we pray with our children. Just be a fly on the wall and learn something in our home. We, we don't do that because we think we'll be taken badly and misunderstood as though we have got it all right and we are prepared to tell everyone else how to do it. That's not the attitude at all. The gifts of the whole church belong to the whole church. And what about childless as yet couples? Notice the way I put that, childless as yet. I'm not so sure that God has revealed in his word anywhere that individual marriage A or X won't ever have any children. Uh, as yet, the children haven't come, but... Uh, who knows? Wait and see. I know uh, our son Peter and, and his wife Barbara had a recent surprise. Uh, they've, they've been married. They were in the Santa Cruz congregation. You may have, some of you may have known, known them. Uh, the, shortly after they married, uh, Barbara conceived and, 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 and Joshua is. And then after Joshua, for years and years and years, no, other, no more babies. So Pete and Barbara said, we're going to go to St. Petersburg. So they went to Russia and they got Oksana. And then they went back to Russia and got Nathaniel. And then Barbara got pregnant again. <laughs> Thirteen years later. And, you know, the doctors, everybody would say, forget it, you just might as well go to St. Petersburg. That's where, you're gonna, that's where babies will be given you. <laughs> but God said, I got a surprise for you. So, childless as yet couples. And uh, what's wrong? You, you don't want to make them feel bad by bringing them into your home and letting them be part of you with your children. They're, they're not going to feel bad. They're going to love you for helping them to get ready against the day that God may make them parents. And who knows? Maybe they'll go to St. Petersburg. That's a parent. That's a parent. Encourage and assist one-income families in affording Christian school education. Well, this is getting a little old. Uh, I should talk about homeschooling here. Maybe assist and, uh, encourage and assist one-income families to figure out how to homeschool their children. Teenagers, here's a job for you to consider. 
Offer your gifts as big brothers or sisters. Go over to those, other, those homes in your congregation where there's a two-year-old, a three-year-old, a four-year-old, and a five-year-old, and mom is tearing her hair out. Just say, I'm coming as a non-paid Saturday worker in your home, and I'm here to do all the stuff that you couldn't get done because you got all these babies. Teenagers, I challenge you to consider doing that. Offer it. Boy, that mom will jump at it. And she will be grateful to you. You'll hear about it a year later. Remember that Saturday you came over and saved my life? Do I... Is that hyperbolic? Do I exaggerate? What do you think? Is that a possibility? Can you... Are there any problems with that? Would that work? Can you live with that? Any moms of two, three, four, five-year-olds here are close to it? Well, consider it. Fathers, here's a job for you. Sharpen each other. There's no reason why you shouldn't ask another brother, father, in your church whom you suspect is not as cognizant of his responsibility as a dad. Now, you have to be careful here. He needs to trust you. You need to know each other. But I don't see anything wrong with you saying, Fred, have you ever thought about family devotions? Yeah, I, I just can't do it. I don't know enough about theology and I don't know the Bible. And I just can't pray. Okay, well, think about it. Maybe we could talk about it next time. Go slow. But there's no reason why dads can't help other dads. If you're careful, if you're loving, and if you're humble, and if you don't come across as somebody who's got it all right, because you don't, and who knows, maybe when you are going to help him, he'll help you. Because after all, you're not going to tell him that maybe you ought to have family devotions if you're not having it yourself. Okay, here are the discussions. And Bill, where are you, Bill? Yeah, we're going to need the roving mic, if you, if you can do it. Because... I've been asking questions here and answering them because we're not getting too much feedback here this morning. But now I'm going to make you feedback. I'm going to ask, these are questions for discussion and I am not going to answer them. <laughs> if you don't answer them, they're going to remain unanswered. Who baptizes? Where should it take place? When? How often? Through what means? And with what words? You could take any portion of this question or all portions and answer, but I want answers to every aspect of that question, Don. <laughs> Not necessarily by you, but, but somebody needs to answer all the parts of this question. You want to start us out, Don? Pick a part? Oh. <laughs> Too many Dons. Too many Dons. I, I got two Dons right in a row. Okay, any Don. Does that have something to do with Godfather? Any? Does that include Don Corleone? <laughs> yeah, right. Which part are you going to take? 
<laughs> Who baptizes? Well, John said something to the effect, I baptize you with water, but he's coming after me. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So in one sense, the, the Lord baptizes through the church, the instrumentality of the church. Uh, and th although the church puts water on the object of the baptism, the Lord actually baptizes with his Holy Spirit. Anyone else want to pick up and add, answer more parts of the question? The other Don? It should uh, take place in the church, in the gathering of God's people, because the person baptized is being baptized into the covenant community. But Uncle Fred has this wonderful cabin up in the mountains above San Bernardino, and we're having a family reunion on August 13th through the 19th. And we just want to have a baptism there in our lake there. It's such clear, precious, wonderful water. And it'll just be so wonderful and the sun will shine. And won't that be great? No. <laughs> Shucks. Anybody else pick up? This is a serial answer. On that one, who's the pastor? Yeah, who's the pastor of the church? For the baptism, yeah. Yeah, indeed so. Yeah, is this the... Uh, I don't think that's in here, is it? Or maybe through what means? Who baptizes? Well, you want to pick that up? Who, who baptizes um, besides... Well, sorry about that. Who baptizes? Uh, you mentioned the Lord himself, but the person there that's... Uh, putting the water over the person shouldn't be any just anybody, right? Should be a minister. Why? Maybe I should let one of the ministers address that. Because <laughs> it's in our form of government. It's in the book. Here, here, here's an answer. This is great. I like the technology. Uh, in. Uh, well, the way I've kind of thought it through, uh, the minister uh, has the function in the church of speaking for God, and baptism is God speaking about his promise and what he is doing for that person. Uh, so it is right that the minister, speaking on behalf of God, administer the sacrament. And, and the minister has a heart attack five seconds prior to the baptism. The baptism has to be called off? Get another minister. <laughs> okay, I, this is, I, I'm inventing a stone that's too heavy for God to lift. Uh, yeah. uh, hard cases make bad law. Right, okay. And, uh, next, we got more parts to this question still we haven't addressed. How about how often? How often should people be baptized? Once. Is there such a thing as a rebaptism? Not, I'm not asking whether should a rebaptism take place. Is there such a thing as rebaptism? That's what, the right answer. Yeah, Bill. Oh, because if they were baptized by a church that wasn't a real church, then they weren't really baptized. So it may be a, an appearance of rebaptism, but really it's their first baptism. Okay. What is a not, not a real church that baptized them in the first place? How, uh, who, who decides that it's not a real church? God's word. They're, they don't adhere to God's word. 
And so all the person has to do is say, I judge that it wasn't a real church, so it wasn't a real baptism. Is that up to the person himself or herself? No. Who, who decides? It would be to whoever uh, they're going to. Who, or at least intend to do what Christ commanded when he said baptize. Is that what they intended to do? And did they invoke the triune name? And did they use water? Now, Calvin was not quite as right-wing as you. He didn't say, and are they a true church? You know, how, what's the, how's their doctrine? He didn't go that far. He just said, do they, do, do they intend to do what Christ said he wanted done? Do they invoke the triune name and do they use water? So Calvin was very, was very liberal there. So Calvin would accept Roman Catholic baptism as having been baptism. Well, do the Mormons intend to do what Christ uh, said to be done? They would say so. How would, what would you do, Roger, at Chula Vista if a person who had been baptized in a Mormon church comes and, and asks for it to be, to be, have it really done, since it never was done? Well, yeah, our session believes that non-churches cannot administer the sacraments. And so you have to make some kind of a corporate judgment, judgment about the, the, whether or not a church has so declined or perhaps as in the case of Mormonism be, as to not be a church. So you would really add to Calvin a fourth? Yeah, if, if that's uh, not think, implied in the whole question of what the intention is. Okay. okay. Anyway, we won't go deeper into that. Yeah. But that's a good one to think about. And Sessions, I'll tell you it happened at, uh, at, at Gwynedd. Uh, Gwynedd Church, I was on the provisional session at the beginning before it was an organized church, and, and, and Joe Gindel came uh, to be, uh, become a member of the church, and he said, of course, I, w I want to be baptized. And we say, oh, you weren't baptized? And he said, well, yes, I was, I was baptized as an infant in the Roman Catholic Church, but that, that's not, that wasn't real. And I said, Joe, do you realize what God has done? He identified you as his way back then when you were a little baby. And look what he's done. <laughs> he's brought you to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which was identified and signified to you in your baptism, notwithstanding all the years in between. And he said, you're right. <laughs> and that was the end of his request. And he was not baptized again. I was sweating on that one because I thought, what am I going to do if he doesn't agree? <laughs> would have been a little bit difficult. Have we done the whole question? Through, through what means? Through what means? Yeah. I still have real problems with their doctrine of baptismal regeneration. And in addition to that, after having, I've just been over their catechism. And I have real problems in saying it's a real church. Okay. I think some people in it are converted, but I, I've, I've got problems with... with no, we're not talking about whether some people are converted. We're talking about whether the baptism was a baptism. And, and can a, a non-church administer real baptism? Okay. See, he, he goes with Roger and says they're out, like the Mormons. Okay. I can live with that. That's why we have sessions, and one person doesn't make the decision. Okay. By what means? That's a no-brainer. Water. And... Uh, what, with what words? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Ministers, will you please be careful 
I've heard it too many times. I baptize you into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I know you believe the doctrine of the Trinity set forth in Scripture and in the Westminster Standards, but those words, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, sound a little bit too close to me, myself, and I. It sounds like modalism to me. There's one God who expresses himself in sometimes as a father, sometimes as a son, sometimes as the Holy Spirit. You don't believe that if you, do, if you slip and use those words. But take the time to use the language of Scripture, Jesus' language, baptizing them into the name. How many names of God are there? One, because there's one God, into the name which belongs to the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. One name belonging to each person. One God, three persons. I'm real fussy about that baptismal formula. Okay, thank you. Do you think it worth the fuss? Stay with us, uh, Brother Bill, because there's a two more, there are two more questions. Do you think it worth the fuss to encourage the PCA to change their parental baptismal vows, and why? I'll take a crack at this one because way back when we were talking about joining and receiving and so forth, this was a major sticking point for me too. I do think the Southern Presbyterians, at least their leading lights, Thornwell and others in the 19th century, recrafted their view of covenant theology and particularly children in the covenant in light of the revivalism of the Great Awakenings and so forth. And that's a whole theological uh, church history question, but the effect was that the, that the children were really presumed to be not truly members of the church, whatever that means, until there was a conversion experience. And I think it's much more, the vows are just the tip of the iceberg, as you suggested. There's a theological paradigm underneath that's very, very different from the, uh, the uh, biblical doctrine, and I think the more historic uh, reform doctrine of, uh, of the covenant and particularly children's place in the covenant. And, uh, and it doesn't help that a lot of us who came into reformed churches are only partially reconstructed Baptists. You know, we, we may consent that children should be baptized without really grasping the implications of that. And I think the PCA forms and the PCA theology still plays into that quite a bit. So I do think it's worth the fussing, but I also doubt that they will, it would be repudiating a huge chunk of their church historical tradition to And that's to make why they that vomited change. up Morton Smith's suggestion that they look into this. I think so. Okay. Thank you. Oh, the last one, I, I blew it. I already did it. I can't help myself. I'm, it's endemic with me. I'm so much in favor of the word. Yes, brother. I was, I was wondering if I could ask another question. Sure. Um, in place of number three, which I already blew. Sure, in place of number three. <clears throat> is it, do you think it's intentional that um, being the major focus on covenantal community, the covenantal family, and being the church, um, that there's not a vow made um, by the church in the instruction of the, of the kids? Back well, again, from the congregation? Yes. In which they do in the CRC, I believe. Yeah, I, I don't know why we don't have that. And uh, I, I really don't know why. You see what he's asking in the CRC? The congregation gets asked, are you going to pray for this child? Do you 
Don't you see you have a part in it? And, and the church does have a part in it. And the church should be praying for the child. After all, the child is a member of the church and doesn't belong to that family. It belongs to God, and God put that baby in this church. I, I would, I would uh, not have any objection to such a thing being there, and I don't know why it isn't there. But uh, it, it would, of course, generate some, con- some uh, debate, I suppose, because it would involve changing a very fundamental and important aspect of our congregational life when you talk about vows taken at, at baptism. Anyone else have a comment on that? See what he's saying? We, there's something that we could add that might be good, he's saying. I just have a question. When we take our membership vows, don't we vow at that point to... The, the congregation? Right, to support we, we our do. elders and the yeah. people, the body of the... So, quid pro quid, it, should, right, it could go exactly. here too. it goes, segues into... Why don't you... Uh, ask your session to overture the, the, the General Assembly. <laughs> That's how things get started. Really. That's how things get started and something good could come of it. I doubt whether that would cause a real controversy. It would just require five or six years. <laughs> the, the, the grain is ground exceedingly fine and slowly. All right. I've only let myself nine minutes for diving into number three, but I think we have to make a start. Otherwise, you're going to get hopelessly behind. Thank you, Bill. Why should we teach our covenant children? Now we're, we're moving beyond the covenant of grace. We're moving beyond uh, our baptism and our baptismal vows. And now we're into the nitty-gritty. And we're, we're, we've got this, this child that's been given to us. And uh, why must that child be taught? Even before we uh, ask the question, what shall we do or how should we go about it, we need to still uh, investigate a little further the question of why. And the, the uh, basic answer is because God commands it. You should never have an A before because God commands it. <laughs> because that means, of course, that there's going to be a B. And how can you have a B after God commands it? <laughs> like, because he's the God, that's why. And if he commands it, then the, that it needs to be done and nothing else needs to be said. But still, we're going to add something anyway to that. There's going to be a B and a, and a C and maybe even a D, I forget. Yeah, no, just a D, C. But uh, God commands it in Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 9. Of course, if you're a dispensationalist, you will say, oh, you're turning to the Old Testament? Well, that doesn't have anything to do with us. That Maybe God commanded it for the Old Testament church, but that was a different church. We're not in that church. So give me something from the New Testament. But we're not dispensationalists, and we believe that the Bible is one, and we believe that uh, the major division in the Bible, remember from two days ago, or, or yesterday, was it, is not between the Old and the New Testaments, not from between Malachi and Matthew, but between Genesis 3.5 and 3.6. Uh, the major division is between a perfect uh, world with perfect people and between a fallen world with a covenant of grace now in force. Now that that covenant of grace has come in force, God has a church. And the first form of that church was the Old Testament church. The church, the church, in the covenant of promise. The church in the dispensation that is looking forward to the coming of the Savior of the church. Which is, of course, the same church from the Garden of Eden until the second coming of Christ. Just one church. So why should that church teach their covenant children? You can go to Deuteronomy or Ephesians or anywhere in the Bible and find out why God wants his covenant children taught. 
And he surely does jolly well command it in Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 9. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God, as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, O Israel! And be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. Shema Yisrael. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your heart, Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. I think the NIV, at least at that point, does an acceptable job translating the Hebrew. You probably have other versions before you. Because God commands it. Verse 6. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. And when God says something is to be, He means do it. Not, I hope, or it is my desire, or maybe it will happen, but I command it to happen. Now, it is not that you need to understand yourself if you are to teach your children. That's not what he means when he says are to be upon your hearts. But even more fundamentally, you need to understand truly and within yourself in order that you might present a faithful example to your children. For you teach them probably more by how you act than by what you say. Don't do what I do, do what I say is anti-education. There is your true inoculation. The liberals say, don't educate your children in your religion because you are inoculating them against making up their own minds. You're putting in their bloodstream a serum of your thinking and that's undemocratic and un-American. But I say that teaching your children and not following your own teaching is the true inoculation. Then you pump into their bloodstream the serum that says it doesn't matter what you do as long as you say it properly. And that is bad. That's the route by which your children will surely be predisposed against the Lord and against His Redeemer because they're going to have a compromised witness and they're going to be smelled out real soon. The world is real good at smoking out hypocrites. For all the flowery language of the world and the most up-to-date pedagogical methodology simply will not serve to undo the damage wreaked by a parent who shows his child the world's way while all along preaching 
the Lord's way. So these commandments that I give you today are to be upon your heart. Or as it's put in Deuteronomy 4.9, the same thing, only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them slip from your heart as long as you live. If parents don't practice what they preach, they practice something else. And that something else that they practice will do the preaching for them. What you do as a parent will preach so loudly that it will drown out whatever words you might speak. I need to take this upon my heart as well as you take it upon your heart. Of course, my major chance now is not with the children, but as it said here in the text, with the grandchildren. I have 18 of them. And they come to Grandpa and Grandma lots of times. And I'm on the spot. I have to be sh- not behave then, and then I can go be bad when they're not there. But I need to particularly watch out how I behave myself, because these precious grandchildren, they're looking at Grandpa. They're watching me. It's a humbling and it's a, it's, a, it's a burden. But it's a burden that we must bear gladly. So if you are a teacher of covenant children, <laughs> your own children, uh, I was going to say your own children, that conjures up the idea that they belong to you. You know what I mean by your own children, the ones that you've been given to, or the grandchildren that you've been given to. You need to be sure of your own spiritual ground. Are you a Christian? Are you absolutely and unreservedly committed to the Bible as God's Word? Do you enjoy a current right relationship with others in your church? You start bellyaching about the the Smiths or the Joneses in the church, and your children hear that, your grandchildren hear that. What are you teaching them? You're teaching them that the church is allowed to hate each other. Now, you don't hate the Joneses or the Smiths, but you're talking them down in your home. Be careful. Don't do that. Even if you are careful to frame it in such language as, now we need to pray for the Joneses because they're really wrong in this thing that they're doing. Your children are going to hear from that. Dad and Mom don't like the Joneses. And uh, they're going to think that that's, that's allowable in the church. You're not allowed to not like the Joneses. You're only allowed to love them, even if you disagree with them. And why are you here bellyaching at your kids? You should be over talking to the Joneses. Do you have a good reason for teaching your children or your class or whoever? You need to know what you're doing. Thank you, Bill. Well, that, that ends number one. And we, we at least broke into why teach our covenant children because God commands us. And we'll carry on from here next time. <laughs>